0: Let's open our Bibles, the Word of God, to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, the third book of the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke. And we're still looking at chapter one. Chapter one is one of the longest chapters in the Bible, but we'll be finishing it today looking at the birth of John the Baptist and the song of praise that follows. As you're turning to Luke chapter 1, let me welcome those who might be watching on our live stream or later recorded sermon. God bless you and we invite you to be with us uh, to worship with God's people and have the blessings of fellowship here. So please join with us here at Clifton Park Community Church. The reading of God's word from the gospel of Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 57. None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying blessed be he blessed be because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. May the Lord bless the hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. I've entitled the sermon on this text of Holy Scripture, Knowledge of Salvation. And it is something not to be taken for granted. The knowledge of salvation. You would think of all peoples that the Jews would have this knowledge of salvation already in place with the promised Messiah on his way, but by the time of Jesus, the, the Jews of that day of first century Palestine were hoping and looking for a military deliverance from the crushing oppression of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had come, they had a puppet king, uh, as it were, Herod the Great, and things were horrible. They had lost all sorts of power in their own municipality of Jerusalem. They were a shell of their former glory and the Romans were everywhere spreading idolatries and sin and and the Jews had had enough. They wanted military deliverance from their enemies. But what we see here in the sending of this messenger in John the Baptist, we see that God is sending them one who will preach a message of repentance. Repentance. If you want to learn more about John the Baptist, you have to read a couple of the other Gospels. Luke will jump and follow the story of Jesus in chapter 2. We do know about John the Baptist from several other places, the Gospel of John and others. But we do know this, that John the Baptist in his ministry would summon these people, these Jewish people, to confess their sin and to repent And to see that the real redemption which was needed was spiritual. That they needed relief from their guilt and their sin. They needed to escape the wrath of God more than the wrath of these Romans. So if you know anything of the preaching of John the Baptist, repent and be baptized to be washed and cleansed from your sin. That's what they needed most of all. They didn't have an accurate knowledge of salvation. Today, 2022 in North America, in the state of New York, many think they know what's needed to redeem life, to make their life worthwhile and happy and good. They, they can tell you, and we see it advertised. The, the gospel of health, the gospel of wealth, uh, success in life, to have friends, to have uh, someone to love, to be happy with yourself, and have others respect your own truth, even if it's contrary to reality. Society seeks to have us worship our feeling good about yourself, That seems to be the highest norm and standard, that you feel good about yourself, that you never have to sacrifice or put off pleasure. Happiness is what it's about. And if someone's not working in your life for your happiness, you can shut them down or cancel them. Those kinds of messages proliferate in the world today, telling us what they think is right and what will uh, redeem or give value to your life. But look around at this culture, hearing all those messages. Isn't it filled with depression? Isn't it filled with great sadness and languishing? Because it's departed from biblical realities. It's not hearing the call of the gospel. Philip Riken, who's uh, president of Wheaton College, said, like the people of Israel, we are usually wrong about what we really need. We tend to look first and foremost at our outward circumstances. We want God to save us from our troubles, from our setbacks, from our financial woes and our enemies. He he goes on, what we need more than anything else is to have a right relationship with God. And this can only come through the forgiveness of sins. And that, my friends, is at the heart of of the message of John the Baptist, the one to announce the arrival of the Messiah. It's in verse 77 to preach the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That was the mission of Jesus, not simply to overturn the Roman empire. He'll get to that eventually. For all the kingdoms of the earth are in the hand of the king of kings. Man's first and greatest need is to be free of our guilt and our shame, to be washed and cleansed and forgiven and to be right with our God. That's the message of Jesus. That's the mission of John the Baptist in preparing the way. And here is good news. Here is knowledge of salvation. Let us wise up and hear what God has to say in his word. Otherwise, we miss the message of Of Christmas and the incarnation in chapter 2, we miss the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Knowledge of salvation. This first paragraph in our text today, beginning in verse 57, is our first uh, focus as we look at the Lord making himself known as merciful. Even before we talk about the salvation he brings, let's look at his character and his treatment of these people. This first paragraph describes the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth and Zechariah. I was a little surprised when the southern commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, with a, with a little glimmer in his eye, entitles this section, God is faithful to the little people. You see, Elizabeth and Zechariah were not famous. They weren't even in Jerusalem. They weren't celebrities of any sort. Yes, he was a priest, a Levite. He would serve In fact, he was in the temple when he heard about John the Baptist. He didn't believe it at first, so he was struck dumb and silent. And he had to continue that way for nine months. And what was surprising about this birth of John the Baptist is that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were elderly. They were senior citizens. They were already collecting their social security. And they were far past childbearing years, the scriptures tell us. But God enabled them to conceive their own child, in their old age. And here we see God being merciful to Elizabeth and Zachariah into one more group. Let's take a look. How is he merciful to Elizabeth? Well, I don't need to go into all the details, but can you imagine a rather elderly woman, 80 something, maybe 90, going through childbirth, labor, heavy labor with a big healthy boy like John the Baptist he's already moving around in the womb we know that God's mercy is just to the the safe delivery of a child to an elderly woman God has kept his promise we see his mercy here she holds in her hands her own son as God had promised And her neighbors make the comment. Do you see it in verse 58? Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. It was obvious that God had been merciful to Elizabeth, who had been barren but was barren no more. God kept his word to this woman and kept her safe through the blessing of birth. And it was Elizabeth who was privileged because Zachariah is not talking. She gave out the name on the eighth day. They they came on the eighth day to have the child circumcised. There was a crowd gathered as was the norm and everyone celebrating. And as they hold the child forth to the one who's going to do the circumcision, they mention his name. They thought it would be Zachariah or son of Zachariah, Zach Jr. But she says, no, he shall be called John. That's what she says. And that means the Lord is gracious or the Lord is merciful. It's really the climax of his mercy to Elizabeth. Looking through those old eyes, maybe she had all the floaters and things that cataracts and all of that and hasn't had that surgery that we have today. But she sees this child and her cup overflows at the mercy of God. God makes himself known as a God of mercy. Even in the name of John the Baptist. There's also mercy here to Zechariah. Do you see that? God is purposely not only doing these things, but having Luke write them in the gospel account. We, we don't have to have these things, but we're told these things to see further what sort of God is at work here. A God of mercy. We see that Zechariah had been unable to speak And what this passage also starts to tell us is that uh, Zechariah was also unable to hear. Why do we say that? Well, when the crowd around Elizabeth wanted to confirm the name, um, they made signs to his father. They tried to do (laughs) charades or sign language. The baby, what's his name? I don't know how you do name. Uh, What do we call him? And that tells us that Zechariah was not only mute, but he was deaf. We didn't have that perfectly clear in the first context. If you remember back up in verse 20, when the angel uh, scolded him for not believing, the angel Gabriel said, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. Two things that are said there. Silent means you're going to be calm like the sea. That same word for silent is used only three times in the New Testament. And once, well, it's used more times, but once it's used uh, metaphorically when Jesus calms the wind and the waves and they're silent and it's quiet. So most scholars assume that this word can mean also mute and deaf. You're living in a world of silence, literally. And so he has to be communicated. He pulls out his tablet. Boys and girls, that wasn't an iPad or Samsung, whatever tablet, it was a, probably a piece of wood with a layer of wax on top where they could take a stylus and write and then kind of rub the wax and use it multiple times and so Zechariah writes on that tablet the answer to their question his name is John it's that clear and in verse 53 he doesn't say he shall be called John Zechariah declares what the angel had already stated this is the name even now Zechariah as it as it were makes a huge declaration in faith in the angel's message and in the will of God. You see, for nine months, Zachariah had been stewing in this silent world of his own. I think over the nine months, he was able somehow to write out and convey to Elizabeth what had happened, and she knew the name would be John, and they were on the same page over those nine months. He'd done a lot of introspection at why he had not believed, and now he believed... It was through his affliction came this restoration of faith. God's mercy to Zechariah is that he used suffering to solidify his faith, to clarify it, to purge away the doubt as it were. That's how our God works. Do you know when you start suffering or some affliction comes your way, hold on tight to the Lord because he probably has some lessons for you we don't usually think that what do we usually think oh i need somebody to commiserate do you know what just happened to me but turn to the lord speak lord for your servant hears in the midst of affliction It's interesting, when you get to the end of the book of Job, it has uh, 42 chapters. When you get to the end of the book of Job, Job has this question. He had seen what God was, he had heard what God was doing. And and then he gets to verse 5 of that chapter and says, But now my eye sees you. He perceived the hand of God in all these things. Through his many days of affliction. God's ways are a bit different than our ways he's making himself known by his mercy to Elizabeth and his mercy to Zachariah and there's a third demonstration of his mercy who would that be to well let's just take a quick pause and point out that God sending Jesus Christ to introduce Christianity to the world was also being merciful to the nation of Judah to the Israelites to the Jewish people There is mercy here to the Jewish people. How so? Because God was sending them, John the Baptist, the last great Old Testament prophet to speak to them using the scriptural truth they knew from the Old Testament to call them to covenant faithfulness. And the people were sensing that. What was this reaction at the close of this narrative paragraph? It said, fear came upon all their neighbors. Why would the fear come? Well, they had seen God release the mouth of Zechariah, confirming the name. Something's going on here. It's an old couple having a baby. That's pretty wild. That's why there's such a big crowd today. This old couple just had a baby. But God has lifted this curse or this affliction. God is being praised. And then they hear this song. And it said, Fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. A new prophet was on the scene, and that was showing God's mercy to prepare his people for their Messiah. They were not ready, they were not focused. But God was going to help them prepare. Do you see the great mercy of God? Not only that he sent his one and only son, but so that we don't miss it, he sent this prophet to awaken his people. Someone with the spirit of Elijah. Do you know the prophecy of John the Baptist from the end of Malachi? Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the very last verses of Malachi... Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. You want a messenger? He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's, That's a top flight MVP hall of fame prophet right there. And then Jesus himself would say, among men, there was none greater than John the Baptist. That's God's mercy to the Jewish people. God declares his tenderheartedness, his loving kindness, his tender mercies. The Hebrew word was hesed to the people. And God hasn't changed. We see our beloved nation in trouble, what many people call America, the Christian nation, we're not here to debate all those things, but the gospel has flourished in our land and we know what we ought to be doing, but so many of our fellow citizens are not paying attention. I'm so thankful that God is still a God of mercy. May he send those who will preach and make clear the gospel so that this nation is ready when Christ returns and it will be too late. The passage goes on to this great song of Zechariah. And if you hadn't noticed, uh, Luke has a wonderful Spotify playlist. He loves songs. And he put in the, the song of Mary, the song of Elizabeth, the song of Zechariah. He's going to put in the angel song. These things are particulars to his gospel. And these songs are poetic, well considered praises to God. And they tell us so much. The song of Zechariah here has two parts. Two parts. And I just want to be clear because we're, we're just going to work through both parts this morning. The first part is praise about God himself. And then, in verse 76, he turns and speaks more about his son, John the Baptist. His praise isn't all for John the Baptist. John the Baptist takes a backseat to God our Savior, the first section up to that break is about the Lord our God and about what he will do incarnate through Jesus Christ the descendant of David you know the first part isn't talking about John the Baptist because he was from the tribe of Levi which wasn't the house of David so verse 69 and those things don't refer to John the Baptist the first section is about God and Jesus and later about John the Baptist so first the blessing blessings of the lord our god the first half of this song in verses 68 and 69 we see him sing of a savior who visits and redeems he doesn't love at a distance he doesn't just toss over some redemption like a, a life vest to somebody in the ocean as the ocean liner keeps sailing by god comes and visits his people and redeems them does that language visit his people does that ring a bell to anyone who's read their Old Testament? Hint, hint, the book of Exodus. His people were in slavery under the thumb of Pharaoh. A great picture of what it is to be captive to sin under Satan in this world. And God says, tell them I will visit them and I will deliver them. And he does. The Exodus, the historic Exodus of God's people is the result of God visiting and redeeming them. So that language is rich. Oh This isn't the sequel, this is the climax to the biblical story. I'm going to come and redeem you. A savior who visits and redeems. The incarnation is underway. God will dwell with his people again, right? Visiting, dwelling. In the Old Testament, the dwelling was in the tabernacle, which is a fancy word for tent. And everybody, as they traveled, had their own tent, and God had the biggest tent. It was a holy tent, special. It had the holy of holies inside it. That was God's tent, and he dwelt among his people. Now he is put on flesh. And in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, tells us, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, Full of grace and truth jesus came with the knowledge of salvation and to procure and provide that salvation because we have a god who visits and redeems he comes close all the religions of humanity are men and women climbing to try to ascend to some heavenly status or have some connection with some greater power it's the seeking i have good news Especially for those who seek. Our God comes. He condescends. He comes down to earth. In his grace and in his mercy and dwelt among us. Jesus dwelt among us. And made the Father known. And the language here used in this visit. Talks about how... um, he has visited us and redeemed his people. It's talking in the past tense because it's as good as done. It's a prophecy. The next verse, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's referring to how he's going to do it through Christ. What is a horn of salvation? It's not just the ram's horn that you blew in Jewish worship. It's simply saying the animal strongest part and defensive part and the part that got the business done was their horn. That's a common Imagery from the Bible. What is the horn of salvation? That's Jesus Christ coming into the world with power to save. And and he could face the foes of Christianity, the foes of God, so well. He could face the devil himself. Jesus was a horn of salvation, and he gets the work done in God's plan of redemption. And that language about redemption um, be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. Saved, delivered, verse 74, that we've been delivered from the hand of our enemies. That speaks of the nature of our change, our rescue, our salvation. The word redeem here means liberate, deliver, or redeem. And it's Old Testament context it, it brought about the thought of how a sacrifice would set us free from our guilt. There would be an annual sacrifice or a particular sacrifice that you could redeem yourself from your guilt and then go on your way. Once you had checked in with the priest and accomplished that redemption you were free to go and did not need to fear. You had done your duty. So when this Savior God is going to visit and redeem. It has those echoes of the Old Testament. But would Jesus go to the temple? Would Jesus offer an ox or a bull or a lamb? No, Jesus was the lamb. The book of Hebrews takes great pain over several chapters to explain the work of Jesus. If you ever need a commentary on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you look at Hebrews. Because it takes the Old Testament, shows you how Jesus fulfilled that. Here's one statement from Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But he's contrasting the Old Testament ways now with Christ, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, remember the visitation, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not a temporal redemption, come back next year with your spotless lamb. An eternal redemption in the blood of Christ. This is the Savior God who's come. He's got power, the horn of salvation, and he comes to redeem. And it will be through his own blood. What a Savior God we have. He's also, in verses 69 and 70, up to 73, he's a Savior who remembers. Do you see that? As a great theme of this song. Let's read in verse 69 and following. Um, Raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, He, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Do you hear the language? One great theme of the praise here of God who saves is that he keeps his word. He remembers his covenants, his arrangements. There's nothing more frustrating to a shopper about to make a big purchase walking into the store with your coupon and say oh well that doesn't apply to this item you didn't read the fine print sorry Uh, that only applies to this other cheaper item Uh, my friends with the bible there isn't hidden fine print God makes his word known. He enters into covenant. He keeps covenant. And when we break our side of the covenant, it's the blood of Christ shed that pays the price for our covenant breaking. That's how this new covenant is better. Christ stands in our stead and keeps our end of the bargain. The text particularly remembers the covenant made with David, King David, someone will rule in your place. It remembers the covenant made with Abraham, that through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God remembers and keeps his word. You can read the Bible and underline the Bible and pray the Bible and hold God to his word. As we should rightly understand it. May God give us a right understanding to believe his word, to obey his word, and trust that he will keep his word. Because he will. And God never forgets. Children, we know the disappointment when dad sometimes has to say, oh, I forgot about that. God, our heavenly father, does not forget. He's a savior, God, who visits and redeems. He remembers and he delivers. That language is here. There's several terms for it. Saves, delivers, redeems. And it does have language here from enemies, from those who hate us. And we cannot gloss over the fact that yes, there is a temporal component. Those who are redeemed of the Lord shall be redeemed from the presence of their enemies. We certainly know how David could praise him in the 23rd Psalm. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. God does give us strength against our present, real, physical enemies. But we also know God sometimes finds it necessary to have his saints suffer at the hands of their enemies. But they cannot touch our soul. They cannot take away our salvation. They cannot touch the love of God. God's love to us cannot be taken away. And we have to remember that some of that freedom and liberation from our present physical enemies is delayed until the last day when Christ appears a second time with his conquering army of angels and puts all things right. That day of judgment will be the ultimate day of our release from all our enemies, all God's enemies. But this deliverance, although it has that component, is primarily spiritual. Let's take a minute to see that. What kind of deliverance is this? Do you see in verse 74 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear it's a deliverance so that we are capable of serving God without fear Stephen one of the first uh, martyrs of the church deacon Stephen uh, he was about to be stoned and yet he's serving the Lord faithfully bearing witness and I don't think he had fear he had a smile on his face he saw Jesus coming in a vision even as he was dying at the hands of enemies It was a spiritual deliverance he found because he was able to serve God without fear. And if Jesus calls you to be a Christian, he might not wipe out all your enemies all around you, but he will enable you to serve him. You see that in the disciples of Jesus after the resurrection, what power they had. They're called before the Sanhedrin and say, you've got to shut up about Jesus. And they said, we can't. We'd rather obey God than you. And they serve the Lord without this fear of men. That's the deliverance of which he speaks. And he's going to expand on that in the second half of the song. Let's turn to the second half of the song because it talks about the message of our salvation and it begins with the messenger. Do we see that as he turns in verse 76? And you, child, as Zechariah looked upon baby John the Baptist. And I think even as a baby, he, he wore uh, all those odd prophetic clothes, probably to get him started early. Uh, he looks on John the Baptist. And says, You will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. What privilege. The last of the Old Testament prophets to prepare the way, to be a preparer, to be that voice like in Isaiah comfort ye, you, comfort your people. It had been over 400 years without a prophet in Israel. And here the people see this child, they're watching this child, and this child is destined for wonderful things, because he will point to the Messiah. It's interesting to note that we have just a little bit more about John the Baptist in verse 80, right at the end of the passage. We're not told much. We remember that Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were pretty old. You know, having a baby in your 80s and your 90s is a challenge, Who was going to raise this child? If in a few years' time they were off the scene. It just says in verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. There's one theory that's cited, and it's just a it's just a guess, a hypothesis, that as John the Baptist, as his parents passed away after a certain number of years, maybe the family took care of him, or perhaps. What of those prophetic encampments in the wilderness of that day, like the uh, Essenes, uh, if you've heard of this little uh, village of believers, maybe they took in this young man and trained him up in perhaps a school of the prophets. We don't know. God took care of John the Baptist and made him into this great prophet and messenger because to him was committed what? The giving of knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. The focus of the message in the second part of this isn't, it's not just all how great John is, but the message, it was one of forgiveness and that's the key to the whole thing. It's not that uh, the Messiah will come and vanquish Rome. It's that he will deal with our guilt and our shame. That there is forgiveness for sins. Because what really affects your life, your happiness, your ability to love and be loved is your rightness with God. Sin is like sand in the gears, vertically and horizontally. It adds frictions to relationships with your neighbor. The gospel frees us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It begins with forgiveness for your sins. So let me ask, has God forgiven you your sins? He doesn't do it by your attendance at church. He doesn't do it by simply owning a Bible. I owned a Bible from my earliest years. And when my best friend was converted, I thought he was in a cult. So I dusted off this book. I didn't really know what was in it. I carried it with me to visit him. And he opened my eyes to its message. Man is not saved by his religion. He is saved by Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's the message. Jesus himself would say, no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. It's a message of forgiveness. Peter would later preach in Acts chapter 10 and say this about Jesus. To him, all the prophets bear witness. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's what all the prophets were about. That's what John the Baptist was about. To point people to Jesus. To receive forgiveness for sins. And the imagery that is used in this song of Zechariah, our last point here. The imagery is that of light piercing the darkness. John the Baptist would be part of it, but the real sun, S-O-N, is compared to the sun, S-U-N. Verse 78, 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, remember that was the foundation, God is merciful, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And in, what was it? The King James used dayspring? What is dayspring? I never really understood that as a kid. Dayspring. It sounded more like a hopping. But it's just the way the the sun leaps into the sky at dawn. That's where the term dayspring comes from. That's what's happening here. The sun, the Lord Jesus Christ is like that into a darkening world, bringing light and hope and direction and healing. Earlier we quoted from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. Do you know what begins Malachi chapter 4 before it talks about Elijah, the prophet, and the John the Baptist figure? This is how Malachi 4 begins. For behold, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven, when all arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In verse 2, but... For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise. With healing in his wings, you shall go out leaping like calves in the stalls. As the Lord brings creation to its climax and end, Jesus is like the son of righteousness. He's the hope in that darkness That if we believe on him and come to him, he is rising with healing in his wings. He brings forgiveness, redemption, salvation. That imagery of sun and darkness would be picked up by Peter later in his second epistle, chapter one. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's Jesus. He brings light and hope. Some people say, oh, I hope there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think I see light at the end. Jesus is the light for life and eternity. And that's what he says in Revelation. Revelation. Revelation 22: I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches I am the root and descendant of David the bright morning star Revelation 22:16 Jesus knows he's the light of the world and he comes to offer salvation and this song of Zechariah summarizes the gospel God coming and staying with his people, saving us, fulfilling his promises, delivering us so that we can serve him without fear, forgiving our sins. That's the climax of our salvation and guiding us into the way of peace. Verse 79. That's my testimony. God has begun those things in my life. Is he at work in your life? Do you have this knowledge? of salvation. In closing, let me just remind you of three things. First, very simple. God does things differently. He doesn't act according to human measures of merit or accomplishment. I did my best. God does his work in a way that confounds the wisdom of the world. Giving children to elderly. Having his son born of a virgin that he would enter the world without sin. And be truly the Son of God, sending the, sending the messenger so we don't miss the Messiah. God does things differently, and He does them with great mercy. A second exhortation is God's salvation is primarily spiritual. While well, many try to turn this into a health and wealth gospel, and that health and wealth gospel has left our shores and has ravaged much of Africa. Much of other nations, it's in South America, appealing to worldliness. People want to be healthy and rich and have a heaven on earth. But the gospel is primarily about this relationship with God. Things spiritual that we might serve him. We must never forget that. And finally, God is due our deepest thanks and our praise. I am humbled by how much Zechariah knew of the promises of God and how he praises God. How great was his faith. That Old Testament believer. We're New Testament believers, right? How great was this Old Testament believer's perception of who God was and what he was doing. His praise was rich and vocal. We don't seem to measure up even though we're on this side of the cross and we have things so plain. It was J.C. Ryle who first got me thinking about this when J.C. Ryle said this. It's clear that the souls of Old Testament believers fed much on God's promises. They were obliged to walk by faith far more than we are. They knew nothing of the great facts which we know about Christ's life and death and resurrection. They looked forward to redemption as a thing hoped for but not yet seen. And their only warrant for their hope was God's covenanted word. Their faith may well put us to shame. So far from disparaging Old Testament believers as some are disposed to do, we ought to marvel that they were what they were. And I think we ought to model that. Knowing what we know, let our lips give forth the praise of our God who has been merciful to us, who gives us a hope of redemption, who gives us strength in the horn of his salvation, who remembers and keeps his word, his word to us will not be broken. Where are our songs of praise? Where is our life of service? Where is our wonder and awe? Pour it forth. Live for the glory of God, my friends. In light of what God has done here. And we haven't even gotten to the birth of Jesus yet. But thus far, we've come with a merciful and a mighty God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the unfolding truth of your word. We thank you for Luke's careful historical account of the birth of John the Baptist, how he displays your mercy to that elderly couple and to the Jewish people and to us. O oh, Father, in your mercy, this word has come to us, to our ears today. Give us ears to hear and a heart and mind to believe. May we trust in Christ. May the Son of righteousness shine upon us and enlighten us in our dark places. And may we serve you without fear and know peace with our God. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.